welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, Awaken friends. Nice to see you all. My name is Micah, if we have not met. Hi, I'm the lead pastor at Awaken, and I'm really glad to see you all. A couple of things before we jump in. Number one, numero uno, for those of you who speak two languages. Uh, The the prayer bit, the prayer uh, prayer announcements, I just want to say a little bit more about that um, because this is somewhat new. Uh, So the prayer feed, uh, essentially what we want to do is make it available to people uh, for, for you to submit requests uh, for prayer, as well as if you're interested in praying for Awaken, uh, both of these would be the prayer feeds. So if you're interested in praying for people at Awaken as those requests come in, you can sign up online. There should be a banner on the website, uh, awakencommunity.com. And you can click on that, and that will take you to a form that will both, you can you could submit requests as well as sign up for the prayer feed on the same form. Okay, so that's one. The other piece is the prayer training. Uh, this has been a, a, a conversation that's been ongoing at Awaken for a few months now. We've been trying to ask, uh, you know, what what is it that we would invest ourselves in in terms of prayer, and are there some people who might be interested in joining that conversation? So if you know Emily uh, Magoon Short, who helps with Artisan Residence, or Ed and Jen um, have decided to say yes to helping out, and so um, we are we want to offer a prayer training, and that's November 1st, and if you are at all interested in prayer, uh, this doesn't commit you to anything, it's totally free of charge, and, uh, and we're just looking forward to more ways to connect people to prayer, so if that's of interest to you, November 1st, 9 to 1, you can sign up online, there's a banner, uh, you click on that, it takes you to the sign up, okay, sound good? All right, great. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 16, we're going to start there, and we're in a series uh, on Moses, which would normally take a person with half a brain to the book of Exodus. And I want to start in Mark for a couple of reasons. It's going to take me just a bit at the beginning here to sort of gain some traction. So this is a a teaching that I want to invite you to put your thinking caps on. Uh, This is a bit out of of character um, in terms of what I would normally do. But I I felt like this was something that we we needed to do because uh, I think it has a pulse in our community. And for me, as a, as a pastor and as a person who is following Jesus, this is of great interest to me. Uh, I've always been a question asker, and I've always not been satisfied with sort of blasé or religious kind of, uh, you know, pray more, or you should have a quiet time. I, it's never been okay with those kinds of answers. So I really wanted to press into this, all right? So it's going to take me just a bit to get started, but I guess I want to know if you're ready. You're ready. Okay, great. That's awesome. Awesome. Great. So Mark chapter 16 Verse 8 says this, Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, if you have a Bible in front of you, there might be something in brackets. What does that say? Somebody who has that in brackets, read it. The earliest manuscripts do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. So, they didn't like the way the story ended. It ends with Mary Magdalene sort of like trembling and bewildered, like what, what, what just happened here? And so added later, most likely, a, up to a century later, depending on who you're talking to, is the rest of the chapter. Verse 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. That's a little bit more encouraging. So mark that. 
Put it in your brain. Now skip back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is like sword drills from VBS, if you remember those. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20. And if you didn't go to VBS, bless you, and don't worry about what I just said. Deuteronomy 20. This is God, Yahweh, commanding Israel to do something. And this is related to them going into the promised land, okay, which is about to happen. So Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18 say, Surgeon General's warning, this is pretty graphic. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave anything alive. Or do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Remember some of those names. As the Lord our God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord. Okay? So this is God's command to the Israelites. Now, Joshua... One book to the right, chapter 10, says this about the Israelites and what they did when they got into the land. Verse 39. They took the city, its king and its villages, and put them to the sword. That's code word for they killed them. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did it to Debir and its king as they had done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon, Essentially, what just has been said is like all of Israel and all the land that God had gave to the Israelites, they, they basically cleaned house, okay? Um, skip to chapter 11, verse 21 and 22. It says, more of the same, At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron to Debir, from Anab, from the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in Israel's territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So, in case you weren't clear, total decimation. Everybody has been removed from the land, all right? Now, Joshua, move to Judges, chapter 1. This is the next book of the Bible, and this is later on, and God is sending judges to Israel, okay? And here's what they're being judged for. Joshua 1, verse 9. After that, Judah went down to fight against the who? I thought they were gone. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, I thought they were gone too, uh, living in the hill country and the Negev in the western foothills, that should ring a bell. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, that should also ring a bell. From there they advanced against the people living in Debir, which was also in the last passage. And then verses 17 to 20 of chapter 1. Then the men of Judah went to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and did I have the right one? Yeah, verse, Judges 1, 17. Uh, the Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from the three sons of Anak. Okay, gang, what's happening here? <laughs> You're lost. Okay, here we go. Mark 16. The earliest manuscripts end at verse 8, which means that later, almost a century later, verses 9 to 20 were added. 
Deuteronomy, God says, go and kill everybody in the land. Totally destroy them. Joshua's account says, totally destroyed them. Judges, the Israelites are being judged because there are Canaanites in the land. The place where Joshua said they destroyed everybody. So which is it? Did they destroy everybody, like the Bible says? Or did they not, like the Bible says? You see what's happening here. We have an apparent contradiction in the text. Now, I could go on and on and on and and offer a number of other places where you would seemingly find, or or you would seem to find, contradictions or inaccuracies in the text. Some people would argue and level a critique against the Bible and say, well, look, it's right there. It, it clearly has a mistake or an inaccuracy or something is not right that says that they killed them all, but then it says that they didn't kill them all. It can't be both. <laughs> That's a joke. So these are passages that either you pretend don't exist, like how oh, the Bible says it, I believe it. That's enough. Or... If you really read it and you ask serious questions about it, like a thinking, rational person would, you would say, hogwash to it all, because how can, how can they both be true? They can't. So if that's not true, then nuts to it all. And I know people who have said that. Or you dig a little deeper and you push in a little bit, and maybe you find something that's worth digging for. I think that there's worth something digging for in each of these cases. What we're going to study today is another one of these passages that is a really tough one. It it seems like on the outside looking in, like, you've got to be kidding me. That's what God is like. So turn to Exodus chapter 7, and we'll read a couple of passages from Exodus 7, which I think fall in the same camp as Mark 16 and Deuteronomy, which is why I showed you those. Exodus chapter 7 verse 3 says this, and at this point I'll ask you to stand as we traditionally do when we read the scriptures. And we'll study this one. So it says, verse 3 of chapter 7, But I, God speaking, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt uh, with the mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions and my people, the Israelites. Now skip down to verse 13 of chapter 7. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. And then verses 22 and 23. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and the Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. Pray with me. God, as we wrestle with your text... We stand in a long, long tradition of people whose name means those who wrestle with God and people and who are not overcome. So we want to do our name today. We want to take a passage that seems on the outside, um, in my opinion, a little bizarre and a little unsettling, that you would harden someone's heart to make a point. And I pray, God, that as we wrestle with this text, that more than anything else, we would see you, Jesus, We would see everything that we need to know and see about who you are, God, because we know and see Jesus. So help us understand, Spirit of God, I ask you you would illuminate the room, that you would take my words, and whatever is of you would stick, and whatever is not would just fall off the end of this platform. Be with us, be near us, God, we pray. And all God's people said,
Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> I want to talk about the heart of the person that's talked about more than any other person in the entire scriptures, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh's heart is mentioned more than anybody else's heart in all of the Bible. Isn't that fascinating? The enemy, the arch enemy of the people of God in the Old Testament. His heart is talked about more than anybody else's. In fact, 20 times in the Exodus story, it says that God or, or Pharaoh hardened his heart. 10 of those times, Pharaoh is doing the hardening, like the last two verses that we read. The first uh, uh, the 10 other times, it says that God's doing the hardening. It's just fascinating, fascinating, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So I want to press into this a little bit because from the outset looking in, from the outside looking in, it appears that God is the one who's up to something. The way, it's, the way it reads is that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart to prove a point, to bring judgment, to f- set the Israelites free for any number of different reasons. But it's God up there doing what God's doing, hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I think that's problematic for a couple of reasons. It appears that God uses people to get what God wants. Some of the critiques of Christianity, and in particular the scriptures, and in particular this story, are that it looks like God uses people to get what God wants. That essentially, um, and we could argue whether or not Pharaoh or Egypt is getting what they deserve, and they're getting judgment for sort of uh, uh, not following Yah. We could argue all of that, that's fine. But the bottom line here is that from the outside looking in, it appears that God basically can use whoever or whatever to get what God wants. If God wants to get the people out of Egypt, if God wants to make an example out of a nation, if God wants to use this one person to sort of, you know, like a living parable, God can. And God can do that because God is God. And to me, it, 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 it moves God into the category of megalomaniac who's sort of thirsty for attention and wants the spotlight. Now, that's a critique, okay? And and I think it's an honest one. I'm painting it up a little bit, but this is something that I've heard about the Bible in this story in particular. God is painted out to be some sort of, you know, thirsty uh, uh, person who has a low self-esteem who needs all the attention. Our free will isn't actually free will. Why is this problematic? What, this idea of free will, that you and I have a choice, it appears in this story that our free will isn't actually free will. It is, it is but an illusion. And I talk about this a lot at Awaken because I think it is absolutely critical and necessary to preserve real free will, where you actually have a choice, where your choices actually matter, and they actually play out in real life, that it's not all set, it's not predetermined, this is not the blueprint, okay? Is it, what's that movie um, with Matt Damon? Is it, has anybody seen that one? Uh, the, the, the Adjustment Bureau, yeah, the Adjustment Bureau. Have you seen that? Like, it's all a, bl- it's a blueprint, right? And God's up there, and it's all been decided already, and these angels gather, they fly around basically adjusting people's decisions so that the blueprint is followed. That's not, what it's, that's not real. That's actually not true, I don't think. If, if Pharaoh is, in essence, a puppet on a string of the hands of God, then, by extension, so are you. So am I. What appears to be real that we have choice and free will is actually an illusion. Regardless of what you want, God gets what God wants. That's problematic, I think. This then becomes a proof text for Calvinism. I make no secrets and no bones that I'm not a Reformed theologian. Now, we could argue and debate that, and there's permission to do that at Awaken. You know, you could disagree with me on this one. That's fine. 
But Calvinism, essentially, the logic of it goes this way. Before the Exodus ever happened and Moses ever got called at the burning bush that day, God knew and planned to literally harden Pharaoh's heart in order that the people of God would be let go and that God would have glory brought to him, God's self, and so on and so forth. Pharaoh was predestined to act the way that he did. He didn't have a choice in the matter. He was but a pawn in a game played by God. Skip ahead to the book of Romans, particularly chapters 8 and 9, where it talks about God predestined some, he elected some, and this, this text becomes a proof text for this idea that God predestines, there are those who are objects of mercy from before the beginning of time, God has predestined and foreknew those who were objects of mercy, humans who would be objects of God's mercy, essentially that, that Jesus' suffering and death on the cross and resurrection would be for them. And then there are those who are objects of wrath, who in actuality would not receive that, that Jesus' death and resurrection was not for them, but it's rather to show that these people were so lucky to get God's mercy. This is an actual way of reading Romans, and I think it is like mind-boggling crazy. Because, maybe most importantly, this doesn't look anything like Jesus. Nothing like Jesus. What does he pray when he's on the cross? God, forgive the elect that I'm dying for. But the reprobate, the object of wrath, don't worry about them because this actually isn't even for them. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He desires that none should perish and that all should find life. Jesus is like, open the gates as wide as we possibly can. Anybody and everybody who ever wants to come back to the Father, you can do it. So these ideas about God up there sort of pulling the puppet strings and Pharaoh only being a, a pawn in the game, it doesn't look anything like Jesus. And so I would argue that if you find something in Scripture and it doesn't match up with what we know to be true about God because of Jesus, back to the drawing board. Like start digging because there's something there. I cannot believe in a God who is up there like a puppeteer and I am but on the end of a string and my life is just the movements of God's hands. That's not love. That's not free will. That's not relationship. Come on, come on, guys. So I think we got to press into this. How do we reconcile the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Is there a way to read the Bible, not discard that because we don't agree with it or it doesn't look like Jesus? I think that there is. Let's go to work. Number one, what is the heart? What are we talking about here? In the Bible, when, when, when a body, uh, a part, or something is talked about in terms of the body, it is often idiomatic. I would, I would submit to you most of the time it's idiomatic, which is to say that it's not talking about the actual thing, but rather it's the thing behind the thing. For example, Jeremiah at one point says, my bowels, my bowels. Now, gang, I don't think that the Bible has any interest in Jeremiah's, you know, number two activities. I just don't. It's not about what he ate for dinner. I mean, there's some Middle Eastern foods that can get you going, but that's not what's happening here, okay? The bowels in the scriptures is the seat of the deepest emotion. And so when Jeremiah says, my bowels, my bowels, he's like, my suffering, my suffering. It's not talking about what's happening here. It's talking about like that thing, those emotions that come from deep, deep inside. At another point, the, the, the author of Lamentation says, my liver spills on the ground. Again, I don't think we're talking about like, you know, <laughs> but rather he says, my liver spills on the ground over the ruin of the people. And it's the lament of the city of God, which has been plundered and where there is just uh, idolatrous activity happening all over the place. 
The psalmist says, my kidneys afflict him, or God probes my kidneys. Now, again, God is not interested in, like, what's inside your kidneys. Well, actually, because he made your kidneys to work and be beautiful and part of your body, maybe God is interested in what's inside your kidneys. But the point is, he's not probing around up there. But rather, the psalmist is saying, oh, God's scrutiny when he searches my soul is just like, like it's inside of me. What about the word heart? What are we talking about? Is the scripture concerned with the muscle that pumps blood in the king of Egypt? No. We're talking about something far bigger than that. So here's the word. It's lab or levab, depending on, and it can literally be translated, inner man, woman, mind, will, or heart. One author says it's the controlling center of human actions, the seat of the inner life. One other author says it this way, the state of the heart defines then the essential character of a person. Its hardening connotes the willful suppression of the capacity for reflection, self-examination, for unbiased judgments about good and evil. In short, the hardening of the heart is synonymous with the numbing of the soul. Have you ever done anything because you didn't want to feel? You ever eaten anything because you didn't want to feel? Have you ever drank anything because you didn't want to feel? Have you ever done something so that you were distracted? This is the numbing of, the hardening of. It's the incapacity. It's the, it's the inability for lucid reflection and self-examination. It's like this, the, it's the inner sanctum. It's this, the seat of who you are. This is the heart, the inner person. So when we say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We're talking about that capacity in a person that is able to reflect and be um, uh, critical about their own well-being and the well-being of the world around them. It's, it's, it's your heart. It's the insides. Now, secondly, if we're going to sort of go, in, go all in here, what are we talking about? What is the heart? And then secondly... I would say it this way, is harden really harden? And by that, I mean, there is a semantic range to words. So when I say dog, if it were going to be translated into another language, there could be a number of different possibilities for, although that's a pretty simple one, and it would probably just be dog, right? Whatever the equivalent is in the other language. When you say heart in Hebrew... The semantic range or the range of meaning that that word could have is inner person, will, mind, heart. So you could translate that word in Hebrew and it would be faithful in any one of these four ways. Inner person, mind, will, or heart. And in biblical Hebrew, the context of where it's used determines the meaning. You tracking so far? That's called the semantic range of a word, the possible ways you could translate it. Now, when the word comes up and there's a translation group of people and they're translating from Hebrew to English, you find a word and it's got six, seven, eight, ten options. And then you make a choice based on context. Those choices are not made in a vacuum. So when a particular word is translated a certain way again and again and again and again, often you could go all the way back and find out you could, you could probably deduce like where these people are coming from and what presuppositions they come to the text with. It's fascinating. For our case, heart or harden, the word harden that's 
The, the Hebrew word that's used that then gets translated hardened can actually mean a couple of different things. Let me show you an example. In Exodus 7, 3, the, the, the word that's translated is kasha, and it can be to be hard, severe, or fierce. So Moses, or God, hardened, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, right? Exodus 7, 3. In most of the passages in Exodus that gets translated hardened, it's this word, this next one. Kazakh. And it means to be or grow firm or strong or to strengthen. Interestingly, Exodus chapter 4, do you remember when Moses reaches down and he picks up the snake and he grabs the snake? That's the word. Kazakh. He takes hold of the snake. The same word that's used and then is translated harden later. The reason I bring this up is, is, is quite simple. Well, maybe not quite simple. If this word, kazakh, can mean strengthen, what did it say? Strength, can you bring that last one up? Grow firm, strong, strengthen. Let's, 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 let's insert this into the passage and see if it changes anything. What does it mean to say to strengthen or grow firm someone's heart? Or what does it mean to say that Pharaoh strengthened his own heart? The first five times this word is used, it's Pharaoh's activity. It's Pharaoh doing kazaking. <laughs> Can you imagine in a movie, I'm sure that this, this has happened in a number of movies and I couldn't, somebody said, I think it's the movie North with Elijah Wood. A young, uh, a kid who's in a family and this kid, he just, he's had it. He's just done with this family. He's fed up and he's like, I'm out of here. I'm checking out. I'm moving out. I'm leaving. And so he's packing his bags and he's ready to go. And mom and dad are saying, no, 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 please don't go, don't go. Like, let's, let's talk about this. Let's, you've misunderstood. It's not that way. That's not true. This is true. And they just cannot get through because this kid has said, no, I am moving out and I'm going that way. And finally, mom and dad just acquiesce and they say, we can't change your mind. And so mom actually begins to help pack, right? Because she wants to make sure that the young child has everything that they need. And so then mom, it appears that mom sends the child out. But is mom really sending out that child? No, that person has decided, that kid has decided, I'm going this way. And is it possible that the hardening, the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart was in fact the direction Pharaoh chooses and chooses, chose to go and that God only participated in giving Pharaoh what Pharaoh actually wanted? If the first five times that it's used in Exodus, this word, it's Pharaoh's activity and Pharaoh is strengthening his own heart towards what? Towards the antithesis of God, towards moving in the, the direction that God is not, towards opposing God and what God is up to in the world. This is what Pharaoh's doing, and he's saying, no, I'm headed this way. Is it possible that then God just, like that mother, acquiesces to Pharaoh's choice, which is real, and says, okay, if that's the way you want to go, you can go your own way. If any of you are singing that song right now. You can go your own way. And this is what it looks like then when sin and rebellion gets a full head of steam and sets its course on the antithesis of God and God's kingdom and God's activity in the world. It looks like Pharaoh. Is hardened really hardened or could we understand that as strengthen? And what does it mean to strengthen your heart in a direction? Have you ever been there before? Where you knew that you knew that you knew, but you made the call anyway. You went to the party anyway. You did whatever it is you did anyway. And you took one step 
in strengthening your heart, your resolve, your inner self in that direction, now we're talking. Now we know where we are. I think that this is what Pharaoh is doing. He's strengthening his own heart in opposition to the things of God. And there comes a point when God says, okay, you get what you want. God stops trying to stop you. This is Romans 1. If anybody's ever been beaten over the head with Romans 1, I would submit a very different reading of that. God hands them over to their own sinful desire. These are people who are set on a course and will not waver. And God says, okay. Because relationship requires freedom. You cannot be in relationship with somebody and dictate all the terms. That's not a relationship. So if God is relational in essence, and we then are made in the image of this God and therefore relational, then it has to be true then that we get what we want when we say, I want that. And we go in that direction with no, with, like, I'm going there. God in God's mercy says, no, please don't go. No, there's other ways to see it. No, don't do that. Come on, that leads to death. And finally, God says, Ugh, it's killing me. But I can't stop you. Because love requires a choice. Fundamentally. And when we strengthen our heart in a certain direction for so long, it becomes hard, does it not? It becomes calloused. C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Four Loves, that our heart becomes so hard and so calloused, impenetrable. Maybe one more question as we seek to understand this hardening, this strengthening of Pharaoh's heart. And I would say it this way. What is the story, or what about the story and who is telling it? When we read the Bible, we have to remember that this book, especially the first five of this book that we're reading right now, this story existed in the culture and in the tradition of the people long before it was ever written down. What I mean by that is this is an oral tradition. The Hebrew people, they're ancient Near Eastern. That's like uh, the, the Mediterranean, Babylon, uh, Iraq, Iran, Turkey. Uh, that's the ancient Near East. And these people were an oral culture, which is to say that all of their history was kept not on paper, but in this oral tradition where they would share these stories again and again and again and again. And so we have to remember that when we read the Bible, it is at once this divinely inspired book and this group of people who have been telling this story for ages and ages and ages. Why is that important? Think about the Joshua conquest narratives of Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Why is the story told that way? It makes perfect sense when you start reading other literature like it from the ancient Near East. Every culture would have said, when we came to town, in actual fact, 500 people died, but like 10,000 people died. There were no survivors. Why? Because when Yahweh comes to town, he takes no prisoners, baby. Not, you know, it's pretty interesting that all these books were written by men. They were overcompensating. <laughs> Just saying. That's another topic for another day. But it's totally normal for the Joshua, if you think about it, not as, not as scripture, but just as an ancient Near Eastern literature trying to talk about what happened when their God, Yahweh, came. 
total decimation. Nobody was left. We cleared the whole place out, and God was the one who did it, and they flexed their muscles. It makes perfect sense. And if you have a better way to understand Joshua and Judges, where one of them says, hey, guess what? Everybody died, and then the next one says, hey, guess what? They actually did it. In fact, you're an idiot because you, you've intermarried with them, and now they're throwing everything off. Like, If you have a better explanation of that, I'd be very interested to hear it. Who's, who, what's the story and who's telling it and why? So if, if, if we move fast forward to our text and our uh, Exodus story with Moses, or Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart, the next question should be, what's at play in the Exodus story that would shed light on why Pharaoh is painted in this light? Like, what's at play culturally? What's happening behind the scenes that would, that would necessitate you painting Pharaoh in this particular light? Listen to this. The theology and political theory of ancient Egypt stressed the literal divinity of the living Pharaoh. Stop. They believed that the Pharaoh who was alive was God. He was a deity. They worshipped him like he was a god. So his law, his will, his word was absolute. So if you're the opposing culture and people group, what would you say about this person? You'd make a mockery of him. Just like a good Shakespearean play, right? Look at what it says. By reinforcing the Pharaoh's stubbornness, thereby making him a prisoner of his own irrationality, God deprives the God, Pharaoh, of his freedom of action. The Pharaoh can no longer control his own will and his so-called divinity is mocked. Boom, drop it like it's hot. So from a narrative perspective, when you think about why would, why would these people talk about Pharaoh in that way? It makes perfect sense that they would say, this person who you all worship as God can't even stop the people from leaving, can't even, is manipulated by, so on and so forth. Friends, let me wrap this up. On the one hand, maybe there are some of you here this morning and you have given up on the Bible or you know people who have given up on the Bible because it didn't make sense, because there were inaccuracies, because there were inconsistencies, because God looks like some sort of puppeteer who's up there pulling all of the strings and you just couldn't keep drinking the Kool-Aid. Good news! (laughs) I don't think you have to keep drinking the Kool-Aid. I think that there's another way to explain, another way to look at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that is consistent and and, and, and doesn't mean that you have to sort of check your brain at the door in order to hold on to something. Now, and then maybe secondly, is there anybody here today who's strengthening their own heart towards something that they know that they know that they know? Is there anyone here who needs to hear the warnings and the lessons that we learned from the king of Egypt in the Exodus story? That when you set your st- your course, your trajectory, your direction towards something that is opposing God and God's hopes and dreams for the world, it is only so long before God gives you what you want. And God says, oh, I wish you could see what I see. I wish that you could hear that this is not a direction that leads to life. I wish, I wish I died so that you free. That's love. And sometimes we get what we want in this life and the next. And so maybe there's a warning here.
the end of every month we celebrate communion together. And I just think it's fascinating when it happens and what we're talking about. But maybe today you need to come to this table to be reminded of who God is. That God is not a puppeteer who's up in heaven pulling strings. But rather, God is a God who hangs on a cross and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing and desires that none would perish, but that all who have a heart turned towards God would come back. That this is who God is. And so this morning as you come, I invite you to remember that. And maybe hear the warning of the Spirit saying, keep heading in this direction and it's not going to end well. Not because I'm doing something, but because you keep going this way and it leads to death. Teshuva, repent, turn around, change your mind. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come and if you're serving communion, um, I'll offer just a word of prayer and you can come and We invite you to dip the bread into the cup. Uh, The bar was locked today, and we couldn't get the wine glasses out, and so we have candle holders. There is red wine in the red candle holder. There is white grape juice in the green candle holder. We've washed them. (laughs) So I invite you to take the bread and dip it into the cup, because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in a room with his friends, and he said, this is my body. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he blessed it and he said, this is a a new covenant written in my blood. Whenever you eat and drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So pray with me if you would. God, as we come to this table, we are reminded of who you are. That you are not some sort of attention-needy, petty God, but rather you are love. You are light. You are that which began everything. You are the God who is made known to us in Jesus. And because of that, we know that you are the one who opens door, opens wide the doors of the kingdom, the doors to the hopes and the dreams of you for your creation. And you're the God who invites us back. So God, as we come to this table, remind us. Remind us who we are. Remind us who you are. And as we dip this bread in this cup, we say yes. We say yes to you. We say yes to Jesus. We say yes to the resurrection of Jesus, which ensures new life for all who say yes to you. And so we come. I'd invite you at your, uh, as you, as you would like, come and receive the Lord's table. I invite you to stand as we close this morning. And I'll just say this, I've been a pastor since 2001, which is getting to be a long time, and I've always hoped for and dreamed of a church where I could be honest, and I could be myself, and I could really wrestle with the things that I felt God putting in front of us. In a lot of churches, you can't do that. A lot of places, uh, it's scary sometimes to ask hard questions about the Bible, or about God. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being a church that lets me do that. Thank you for being a church that goes with me as we wrestle with tough topics and hard things to think about. My hope and my prayer for you as Awaken is that you would not be, that you would not have faith in a book or a religious system, but the living God of creation 
who is made known in Jesus Christ, whose power and love broke through death on the morning Jesus resurrected from the tomb. That's my hope, that that would be your faith, that that's what it would be in. And together we'll navigate the tough, difficult, challenging places in life, in the Bible, um, but that we would lean hard into the mystery of who God is, always knowing and hanging on to that we know this much is true, that it will look like Jesus and it will look like resurrection and new life. Amen? Amen. Go get them. See ya. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.